0: Welcome back to the Dr. Sex Fairy Podcast. I am Dr. Kaval Bhava and I am here to transform your life. Today's episode is a very important one. We are here to discuss the orgasm gap. What is an orgasm gap, you ask? Let's discuss the numbers. In a survey of over 2,000 straight women, 57% said that they orgasm most or every time they have sex with a partner, while 95% said that they partner orgasms most or every time. In a different survey, 64% of women and 91% of men said that they had had an orgasm during their most recent sexual encounter. It is quite apparent that there is a large gap between the number of women having orgasms and the number of men having orgasms. I am honored to be joined on this episode of the Dr. Sex Fairy podcast by Dr. Lori Mintz who is the author of books such as Becoming Cliterate*, Why Orgasm Equality Matters, and How to Get It, and A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, Reclaim Your Desire and Reignite Your Relationship. Dr. Mintz is a feminist author, therapist, professor, and speaker. She teaches the psychology of human sexuality to hundreds of undergraduate students every year at the University of Florida. She also teaches and mentors graduate students. Dr. Mintz has published over 50 research articles in academic journals and six chapters in academic books. She has received multiple professional and teaching awards. She is a fellow of the American Psychological Association. She also writes a popular Psychology Today blog. I don't know how she even has the time to have any orgasms herself. (laughs) Welcome, Dr. Mintz. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for
1: that lovely introduction. Thank you for having me here. And I can promise you, I find time
0: for my own orgasms. I am so proud of you. I always say that you are the patron saint of orgasms, right? <laughs> and the clitoris. So, in fact, we have so much in common. We come at it through different points of view, but we are both helping women reclaim their sexuality. And in many ti- many ways, you know, claim it for the first time. Absolutely. Women, Women just seem to take it for granted that they won't have orgasms and you're here to change that.
1: Well, I think we're both here to change that. And yes, yes, it's so true that many women don't have orgasms and they're not upset about it. They say it's okay. And I often think about why are they saying, okay, it's, I think it's related to something we psychologists call cognitive dissonance, which is if you don't think you're going to have something, then you diminish its importance in your mind But I am here to say not to put pressure on the orgasm, because the pressure to have an orgasm makes it less likely, but it is the pinnacle of a sexual experience. And when we've got half the population having significantly fewer than the other half, we've got a cultural problem.
0: Yes. Now, let's discuss the difference between sex and intercourse. You went into it in detail in your book, and I think our listeners should hear about that
1: yes thank you because that actually that chapter of the book the linguistic analysis of the way we talk about sex i'm really passionate about and it was my favorite chapter so thanks for leaning in no
0: i think it's amazing that you discuss that it's a very relevant topic
1: thank you so you know the words that we use to describe sex both reflect and perpetuate a cultural problem. And that cultural problem is the overvaluing of male orgasm and the devaluing of female orgasm and pleasure. So we use the word sex synonymous with the word intercourse. And that's both heteronormative, but it's also privileges men in their pleasure. We use the word foreplay as just a lead up to that main event. And the bottom line is that most women do not orgasm from penetration. In fact, in research I've conducted only 4% say that they that's their most reliable route to orgasm. So using the word sex and intercourse is if they're one and the same and calling everything before foreplay, is naming sex after the act that is most likely to bring men, not women, orgasm. And if we were, and I'm not suggesting we do, but if we overvalue female orgasm the way that we overvalue male orgasm, we would call foreplay sex and intercourse post-play. And when we think about that, it really brings home the point that we should just use the real, everything in a sexual encounter is equally sex and then just use words, oral sex, intercourse, et cetera. And along these same logistical lines, I like to point out that most of the nerves needed for female orgasm are on the outside of our genitals, what's called the vulva, versus the vagina, which is a canal where babies um, can come out, penises and dildos can go in. And, but yet we call our entire genitals a vagina. And by doing so, we are linguistically erasing the part of ourselves that gives us the most pleasure. And we're naming our entire genitals by the part that's most sexually useful to our male partners rather than ourselves.
0: Agreed. And I think there's an alarming number of women who don't even understand their own anatomy, not at a, you know, medical gross anatomy level, but very often I found my patients can't even differentiate between labia and the clitoral hood and the clitoris itself.
1: Absolutely. And when I'm treating with women, women, because I'm a psychologist, you're a physician, when I treat women who are having difficulty with orgasm, the first step is educating them about their vulva and vaginal, their genital anatomy, and sending them home with a picture, a diagram, and asking them to look at themselves and identify the parts and appreciate the beauty of their own genitals.
0: I love that because so many women don't even look at themselves. They have no idea what they look like down under.
1: Exactly. And but and then those who do, unfortunately, often feel a great deal of shame, um, because we've got these, you know, images of even and petite inner lips. And, you know, they're not supposed to be and it's just completely normal. I don't need to tell you this. So that for the inner lip to stick out from the outer lips, but You know, just like men are chosen in porn for having larger than average penises, often women are chosen for having even in petite inner lips, and some even get surgery to make that so.
0: You know, I refuse to do labiaplasties. I can, but I don't. And I'm seen as almost a heretic in the cosmetic surgery world, especially since I do intimate wellness and sexual wellness for people. And I refuse to do that. And... Mm -hmm. People ask me why.
1: Yeah, I'm clapping my hands
0: because you know as well as
1: I do that most people seeking labiaplasty have completely normal looking and functioning vulvas. The only time I've ever heard it be warranted is in situations with pain, you know, and that's so rare.
0: Yes, I have never had a woman come to me and say, I want a labiaplasty because this hurts or this interferes with my life in some way or it's sticking out of my swimsuit. I mean, why else would you want it? Nobody else, nobody else has come in saying this and I've refused to do it 100% of the time because I think that women need to stop seeing themselves that way. They need to realize that they are good enough and that they are beautiful, that they're unique and it's okay to look different. It's okay to be unequal in some ways, because your labia, you know, they're sisters, not le- not twins.
1: I love that. They're sisters, not twins. I love that. Can I tell you a funny story, a funny labia story? Sure. So um, when I was writing my book, Becoming Clitorate, I had a line in there because I really wanted young women especially to know that this is normal. So I said, you know, I have one of those vulvas where one inner lip is bigger than the outer lip. And in fact, one is so big, my genital profile looks like a face with a tongue sticking out and that it doesn't bother me. And the book was in press. And I woke up in the middle of the night with only what I could describe as a coming in almost a panic attack thinking, oh, my gosh, that's so graphic my son-in-laws, you know, are going to like have a visual of my genitals. I don't really want that for Thanksgiving. Uh, (laughs) so, So I called my editor and I said, I think we need to strike that line. And she said, I disagree. It's a really important line. Keep it in. You need to role model that. I said, okay, fine, but let's take out the visual. Let's just say, truth be told, one of my lips is bigger than the outer lip and sticks out. And I, you know, so she said, I like the other way better, but we'll change it. So we changed it. And um, I talked to my partner about it, who is a very clear man and very funny as well. And for the next couple of days, every time we kind of passed in the kitchen or the hallway, he would take his uh, tongue and stick it out of his mouth and make a funny face at me.
0: That's funny. Um, (laughs) No, you know, we struggle as practitioners, you and I, because you want to let people know it's okay. But, you know, it's almost like a separation of church and state to some extent, how much of yourself can you divulge?
1: Right, right, right. And that just felt like a little much. But I mean, I think that's true, certainly as a therapist, but as a writer, you know, I feel like it's a little different. And I feel like it's, it was important for me to let readers know, that's the way my genitals look, and it doesn't bother me at all.
0: And that's wonderful. Now, since you talked about appearance, let's talk about how lack of confidence in our physical appearance affects our ability to orgasm, like these women who want labiaplasties.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that question. But you cannot have an orgasm or pleasurable sex even If you're in your head thinking about how you eat, you could be thinking about the email you forgot to send, or you could be thinking about how do I look? How do I smell? Is my genitals smelly? Is my inner lip too big? Is my stomach sticking out? Whatever. And we know that women do that all the time. Um, There's even a name for it. It's called spectatoring, like you're watching yourself. And what's really important to know is that to have an orgasm requires turning your busy thinking, monitoring brain off and focusing completely on the sensations of the moment, putting your mind and body in the same place. And you cannot have an orgasm or relax if you're thinking about how you look or smell. And as I often say, I absolutely know both scientifically and personally that it's impossible to have an orgasm when you're holding your stomach in because I spent four years of college trying.
0: No, agreed, 100%. Um, Part of what I do is helping women look better vaginally and function better. Now, when it comes to the appearance part of it, I do it only if they're doing it for the right reasons. For instance, I can help plump up the labia that, you know, deflates over time, like the rest of our bodies, our faces. Um, I can help plump that up with, uh, with a procedure I call the wing lift. I mix PRP, which builds collagen, and I also put in hyaluronic acid filler, and hyaluronic acid is something our body makes naturally anyway. But even that, I want to know they're doing it for themselves. It's not a case of, you know, I am dating this man and he complains about my appearance and, and that's happened. And I've told him, well, you need a different man.
1: Uh-huh. Uh oh, yes. Yes.
0: So, you so- know, I'm, I'm kind of straddling both worlds where I want to empower when men and women, I do penis enlargement too, but my goal is it's okay to want to change yourself a little bit physically, if that's what you want, but you have to want it for the right reasons.
1: Then it has to be, and you know, sometimes it's, I agree with you 100%, and what comes up for me is sometimes we're so socialized, right, to be or look or act a certain way, sometimes it takes a real deep dive, I think, in terms of knowing where you start and your socialization ends.
0: Yes, and that's why I talk to my patients a lot before I delve into vaginal rejuvenation or erectile dysfunction treatments or whatever it is I'm doing, even my transgender patients, I want to know their story. So it's almost like a little therapy session, even though I'm not a therapist, because I feel that I can't help them physically if I don't at least understand part of their story mentally.
1: That makes so much sense. And I I wish more doctors were like you in this way. I really do. And I'm really... Um, very appreciative that there are physicians who are dealing with sexual health, who are really trying to empower people, rather than to help them just conform to an unrealistic standard.
0: Thank you. That means a lot to me that you say this, because as I've said to you many times before, you are my hero. I am a legitimate, you know, Lori Mens fan. And Aww. so it means a lot to me that you said that, but I take my job very seriously. I know that I can help people physically, but... I want to do it if it truly is the right thing to do. Like I refuse to do labiaplasty. You cannot convince me to do it. I will not do it. I just don't do it. And so, you know, it it has to be, it has to be a balance, I think, because people do want to look good and sometimes looking a little tweak here or there can help them so much in the bedroom, but it should never be just about that, in my opinion, and clearly yours as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it's, I think it's really important for people to think like, you know, and there's so many, you know, labiaplasty, we could talk about it all day. It may be done because someone's self-conscious, but there's only one study on it in terms of outcomes. And sure, some people does, it does make them feel better, but there's also a lot of people who have had it and have lost pleasure. Yes, because inner lips are as you well know they're analogous to the shaft of the penis they're chock full of touch sensitive and nerve endings that are pleasurable to touch and if you tug on them you're also tugging because they're on the clitoral hood because they're connected to the clitoral hood they form the clitoral hood So we're talking about taking away very erotic tissue for reasons of appearance.
0: Yes. And I had a woman come to me in her early 20s. It broke my heart to see her. And she cried. She cried. And it was not just a little sob. She was miserable. I saw such sorrow in her eyes. She got a labiaplasty and lost sensation. And Mm -hmm. she asked me, what can you do? And you know, beyond doing some PRP to try to regenerate a little bit of sensation, a little bit of nerve function, I I told her not a whole lot. Mm. And it broke my heart to say that. Yeah.
1: Oh, that is heartbreaking.
0: Early 20s. And I thought, mm. you poor girl, you have a life ahead of you and you ruined your sexual function and pleasure over what exactly? A perception that you weren't perfect, quote unquote, based on what? A porn movie? Based on uh, what? Whose concept of perfection were you after?
1: Oh, that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart.
0: Yeah. Local Boca Raton surgeon went to town on her and basically castrated her for all intents and purposes, in my opinion. Mm. But, um, so anyway, let's talk about more positive things. How do you <laughs> think, because, you know, it just makes me so sad thinking about her. How do you think better sexual communication helps a woman or even a man have a better sexual experience?
1: Well, it is foundational. Um, I often tell my clients and my students that I, I cannot teach you to mind read. I can't do that. That's impossible. But I can teach you how to communicate. And as a client of mine once said, and I love this, and I said, can I steal your line? She said, of course. Communication is the bedrock to make your bedrock.
0: Ooh, I like that. Um, I'm going to steal that one.
1: <laughs> please do, because it is so foundational. It's foundational from the beginning to the end. It's foundational for consent. It's foundational for telling your partner what feels good, what doesn't feel good. Um, it's foundational during faster, slower, you know it's foundational after, how was that for you? How could it have been better? I mean, it is the, it is truly the bedrock of satisfying sex.
0: Yes. And I think that you also talk about how perceptions towards sexuality and sex from a young age, such as in sex education, you mentioned that and becoming Cliterate, uh, one of my favorite books, by the way. Um, okay. And, you know, Sex education is seen as STD teaching. It's seen as condoms and, you know, birth control. There's not much about human sexuality. Now, I'm not saying that you should teach people all about, you know, sexual pleasure necessarily at 13, 14, 15 years of age, but it should at least be part of the conversation somehow.
1: Yeah. And right now, it's I'm so upset about so many things. In the world and one of them is our sex education system we teach people lies i mean i can't i could tell you so many horror stories of things that people have been told in sex ed that are just not true um for example i had a student just a year ago so this is right here and now was told in her sex ed class in high school That if she had intercourse before, although I'm sure they use the word sex, before marriage, her vagina would mold to the shape of that person's penis and her future husband would be unsatisfied forever.
0: How ridiculous.
1: We're allowed to lie to kids in sex ed or omit information. And in fact, um, the Society of Adolescent Medicine said that our sex ed system is a human rights violation because... People are entitled to accurate medical and health information, and we're not giving it. And in countries like the Netherlands, which I was going to go there and meet with the people who were doing sex ed there, but then the pandemic hit. But I had the honor of chatting with them via, you know, Zoom and such. Like they start in kindergarten and it goes, it's just like math. It starts in kindergarten, it goes through the end of high school, and it's increasingly complex. They talk about STI prevention. They talk about pregnancy prevention. They talk about safe sex, but they also talk about consent and pleasure and orgasm, and they even mention the clitoris. And in some sex ed, they even educate students about the difference between porn, sex and real sex, porn literacy, because so people don't imitate it. And guess what? No surprise. Um, they have less of an orgasm gap and they have less sexual assault and coercion.
0: This is truly groundbreaking. And I'm sad to say that we don't do it in our own country here.
1: I know. I I think we'd solve so many problems from, you know, the orgasm gap to our high percentage of sexual coercion to people wanting labiaplasty. You know, if we had proper education, knowledge is truly power.
0: It is. And since you brought up porn sex versus real sex, I think, and you mentioned this in your book again, um, that the portrayal of sex in movies with all the thrusting is sending the wrong message because that's not how women orgasm yet. They're shown to be, you know, ecstatic in those movie scenes.
1: Right. The, the, there's very little fooling around. The man puts his penis in the vagina. She's having an instant orgasm. And the truth is you and I both know that is not only likely unlikely to result in orgasm. It is likely to result in sexual pain, which 30% of women say they had pain at their last instance of penetrative sex and most don't say a word to their partners. That's another cultural narrative that it's supposed to hurt and it's not.
0: It's not. And you know, I love that you brought that up because I always say that I'm gonna play the devil's advocate. You, You complain that your partner doesn't give you pleasure, but you're faking it. How are you gonna make it if you're faking it? That's
1: exactly. Um, Lonnie Barbeck had a great line and she wrote a great book a long time ago called For Yourself. And I quote her in Becoming cliterate when she says that by faking, you are teaching your partner to do exactly what doesn't work for you.
0: hundred percent. Absolutely. Now, what do you think is the most reliable way to orgasm for a woman?
1: Well, the research tells us that is, it is one of two things, either external stimulation alone. And when I say that, I say clitoral stimulation, but it's, we, most women don't want their clitoral glands stimulated. It's way too sensitive. So the hood, the labia, the mons, pubis, the outside alone, or um, combining penetration and external stimulation, And again, in my research, when you ask women, what is your most reliable route to orgasm? It's about 50% split between those two, about 20% say they never orgasm and only 4%. And I've done this, this question with about 10, 20,000 people at this point and anywhere from two to 4% say their most reliable route to orgasm is penetration alone.
0: And in your book, you mentioned that that's likely the biggest lie women are being told about their orgasm.
1: Yes. And I I just, you know, I sometimes I can't believe it's 2022 and we're still trying to debunk that lie.
0: Isn't that something? So how big, I I quoted when I spoke initially, I, I mentioned statistics from your book, but how big is this orgasm gap in your opinion?
1: It's huge. Now you, I mean, there's so many studies and I love that you opened with a few. And what we know is that the orgasm gap is the largest in first time hookup sex. It gets smaller with friends with benefits. It gets smaller with relationship sex, but it never ever closes altogether. Even in the context of a long-term relationship
0: women are having fewer orgasms than men. And I think to some extent, they're going to have to educate their men because I'd like to think that most men want to pleasure their partner.
1: I agree with you. And in fact, since I wrote Becoming Clitorate, some new research that I think is fascinating has come out around that. And that is that men, you know, I say in Becoming Clitorate, Now, most men do want to pleasure women. If you find one who doesn't run, run fast. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of men do want to pleasure women, but they've been fed this lie as well. And it's detrimental to them because they are not enjoying sex as much either because during intercourse, they're so focused on lasting long and thrusting hard to, quote, give her an orgasm then then they are focused on their own pleasure and there was a study that talked that showed that men care so much that they view it as a reflection of their masculinity whether or not a woman has an orgasm with them so they care deeply they're just going about it wrong and if they learned could learn the truth they could provide pleasure to women and enhance their own pleasure and I, along those lines, I often advocate, let's please stop making dick-sized jokes because by doing so, we are creating insecurity and we are perpetuating the lie that the penis is essential for our pleasure. If we want to joke, let's start joking about flexibility of fingers and tongues and ability to hold a vibrator.
0: Now, again, I do penis enlargement at my practice, but I do it non-surgically. And I do it in a way where I'm actually increasing collagen production in the, in the man himself. So between the P-shot, which is for pleasure, and the enlargement, which is for size, I'm actually improving their, their um, physicality in some way. But again, I don't do it unless I have a detailed discussion with them about why they want to do it if they're with a woman who is making fun of their penis size and enough women do that. It's unfortunate, but it happens. Then I tell them they need a different partner, period. I'm not doing it. You know, go get a different partner. Come back to me in six months. And if you still want to do it, I'll do it.
1: Yeah, so you do this. I love to hear that you treat penises and, and, and inner lips the same. Let's talk about why you want to change. And if it's because someone is demeaning you, then that is not, you, you're better off with a new partner than a surgical or medical procedure. Yes, Absolutely.
0: yes. Because in my case, I'm not doing surgery, but I'm still doing a procedure. And I want 100% of my patients to be doing it because they want to do it. They have to be empowered enough to want to do it because they want to be different in some way. Or, you know, with vaginal rejuvenation, I always tell them, I want you to do vaginal rejuvenation for better vaginal health, not because your partner is whining that you're too loose. That's not a reason to do it. Right, right. Beautiful. And then, you know, you and I are increasing clitoral awareness, which is a huge thing. And like you said, it's amazing that in the year 2022, we're still even having to have this discussion, but clearly we do. And so it's it's important that we're doing this. And you mentioned in your book that 78% of orgasms are caused by either not enough or the wrong kind of clitoral stimulation. So that's another thing.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there was a, it was a survey. So it wasn't, it wasn't a scientific study. It was like by Cosmo magazine, but still they had a ton of people reply and ask like, what is stopping you from orgasming during partner sex? And 73% said not enough or not the right kind of clitoral stimulation.
0: Because like you mentioned, sometimes the clitoris itself is too sensitive and maybe the woman needs stimulation over the hood.
1: Exactly. Or through underpants or a washcloth. Absolutely. But, you know, the other thing that I think is really important for everyone to know is when women pleasure themselves, and this relates to me, to the orgasm gap and everything we're talking about, when women pleasure themselves, less than 1% do so exclusively by putting something in their vagina. That's Whoa. interesting. One,
0: less than 1%. Yeah.
1: The rest wow. use either exclusive external stimulation or external coupled with penetration, And when women pleasure themselves, 95% orgasm, easily and within minutes. So we know how to orgasm when we're by ourselves. It's just when we get with a male partner that we, you know, we kind of say, oh, I must not need that. And the most essential step to having an orgasm with a partner is getting the same type of stimulation you get alone which is why the first step to helping a woman become orgasmic is saying, go home and masturbate. Know what you have and play with it. And then we need to figure out how to transfer that into a partnered sexual encounter.
0: Yes, and I think that it's this knowledge of how your anatomy works as a woman that helps lesbians have more pleasurable sex than heterosexual sex.
1: I agree, and I also think that the difference also is that well two things having a clitoris you know teaches you that you need to ask your partner how they she wants her stimulated and also when two women are getting it on they don't revolve the whole thing around penetration they only include it if it enhances pleasure they don't have this main event to revolve things around Whereas in heterosexual sex, we have this foreplay just to get her ready, intercourse, sex over. It's all revolved around one event. And that event is the least likely event to bring women orgasm.
0: Isn't that ironic? Now, let's go back to time to orgasm. You mentioned how women orgasm 95% of the time when they're masturbating and they do it quicker. Now, men have... A period of about 5.4 minutes according to research that it takes them to ejaculate and women need about 13.4 minutes to orgasm now you're the expert in the statistics clearly but that's what i've read but when women are masturbating they don't need 13.4 minutes
1: no i've read it's it's when women and men are masturbating one study now i think it was kinsey so it was a long time ago That the time to mass to orgasm from masturbation, or maybe it was Masters and Johnson, for both women and men, is an average of
0: four minutes. That's what I've read as well. Four minutes.
1: Yep, and it's identical for you know. But why do we need more during partnered sex, and why do men need more during partnered sex? I mean, if When you're the only one involved, you don't have to take into account anything but yourself. And there's no self-monitor, well, not none. There's a lot less self-monitoring, a lot less up in your head. Am I doing it right? Do I look okay? But those statistics really tell us that the problem, the orgasm gap is not the result of women's orgasms being difficult or elusive. They're not elusive when two women are together And it's not elusive when we're alone. And these statistics are so important because they tell us that the orgasm gap is a cultural problem, not a problem with our bodies.
0: Agreed. And in fact, you refer to masturbation as solo sex a few times in your book. And and I think that's a great concept because you are having sex with yourself.
1: Yes, it is self-love. It is self-care. It is self-pleasure. Betty Dotson, who I'm, you know, had a book called sex for one, or and I mean, it is sex, it is sex with
0: yourself. Now, Betty Dotson used to have these um, classes, where you, and she had a bunch of women who were naked and masturbating at one time. Now, that makes me highly uncomfortable, the thought of doing that, but how liberating.
1: Yeah. And there's some videos on her website. I show one in my class called it's a call. It's under in her website under vintage videos. There's a video called Becoming Orgasmic Carol, where she you'll see that circle with the women naked in the beginning with their vibrators. But she did group orgasm lessons, but she also gave private orgasm lessons and right, as a as a physician and as a psychologist, I mean, that would be unethical for me to watch a client masturbate, to coach them. But Betty did that. And in fact, about six or seven years ago when Betty was still alive, um, I had a client who was having difficulty orgasming and I did everything I know how to do. Everything in the clinical literature, everything I've written about, she still wasn't having an orgasm. And I, she was going to New York City for a business trip. And I said to her, you know what? You're way better off making an appointment. Spend your money on Betty, not me. I've taken you as far as I could go. And the next thing I knew, you know, of month, you know she made the trip. She met with Betty. And I got a picture, a text message of, with her and Betty with their thumbs up. Oh because wow. Betty could do what I couldn't do. Betty watched her masturbate and discovered that indeed she was orgasming, but she was so uptight and so stressed out that at the moment of orgasm she was clenching her jaw, holding her breath, holding herself so tight that she couldn't even perceive the orgasm.
0: And mindfulness as you mention again in your book is so important, being in the moment. Right.
1: Absolutely, yes. It's essential putting your and mindfulness isn't always being present. It's it's having your mind and your body in the same place, which we rarely do. We're often our body can be doing one thing and our mind's doing something else. But the key to mindfulness is noticing when your mind wanders and going, "Oh, there she goes again," bringing her back non-judgmentally. To the to the sensations of the moment, and you can learn mindfulness by meditating. You know, there's apps, Insight Timer, Headspace, but you can also learn it just by living. The ne- I always tell my clients, practice it in your daily life. The next time you brush your teeth, really, really focus on the sensations of the toothpaste in your mouth the sensations. And when it's a minute long, and when your mind wanders, bring it back to the say sensations, and practice that in daily life, and then apply it to the bedroom.
0: I think that's a great piece of advice for our listeners. And, you know, when it comes to orgasm and the clitoris, you can't not discuss the G spot. This is this mythical spot, the Grafenberg spot that everybody talks about. Now, I find it very annoying because everybody's focused on this one spot and men and women alike are going crazy trying to find it, to stimulate it. But the irony is that cadaver studies have found that it's really just an extension of the clitoris. So the pleasure is real, but it's still a clitoral orgasm.
1: Yes, it's, you know, and, you know, um, I'll bring up Betty again. She said the way the media has portrayed and hyped the G spot, it's taken us back to a Freudian era where we're all looking for something magical in our vagina. And, you know, your abs, you know, better than I do. It's the the G spot. It's not a spot. It's an area Mm -hmm. and it includes part of the clitoris, part of the urethral sponge, part of the vaginal wall. And what do we know about it? We know that some women can't find it Others find it and find it gives them no pleasure. Others find it and find it highly orgasmic.
0: Yes. And that's the other thing I tell my patients is that free yourself to find your own kind of orgasm. You don't have to have an orgasm a certain way because you saw it in a movie or your friend told you about it. You're allowed to be you. You are allowed to be unique. And you mentioned being like a snowflake in your book be a damn snowflake. It's okay. It's beautiful. You are you.
1: Absolutely. That however you orgasm is the right way to orgasm.
0: And you mentioned in your book where you were talking about when you were teaching women how to try to masturbate and have solo sex, you mentioned about how even paying attention to which side of your clitoris you might find more pleasurable because nerves don't read the textbook. Everybody is unique.
1: I love that. Nerves don't read the textbook. That's absolutely right. And there was one cadaver study. I don't know if you're aware of it. I'm guessing you are where they dissected, you know, many women and they, what they found is everybody's nerve pattern was a little different. Some had more to the right of the clitoral hood, some to the left. Like, so whatever you like is fine. It is
0: perfect. And that's the thing. Acceptance. Acceptance of yourself. Acceptance of, you know, the fact that you're not going to be physically perfect. That's okay. There's beauty in imperfection. And I say that as a cosmetic surgeon. There's beauty in imperfection. And people almost keel over when I say that.
1: Yeah, there is. I mean, there is beauty in imperfection. We are all... I mean, and who defines perfection to start with, right? That's so culturally oh, yes. mm-hmm. and time bound. What's perfect today is not what's perfect in 20 years in a, ago or 20
0: years ahead. And even in other cultures today. Exactly, exactly. Like in the U.S., being a size zero is considered so sexy, but in other cultures, that's considered ugly. They want heavier women. I mean, to them, that's sexy.
1: Exactly, exactly. So understanding that body image itself and, you know, what's considered beautiful, both in terms of our faces, our bodies, and our genitals is so culture bound.
0: Yes. And then, you know, the like we discussed earlier, understanding your own anatomy is so important. And in your book, you talk about giving your anatomy names. Now, I I struggle with that, because I, I get irritated when I hear some words being used, um, but I guess to each her own.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I, in my ideal world, we would use the right names, penis, vulva, vagina, you know, inner lips, outer lips, scrotum. But the point I was trying to make in that was we elevate the penis in our culture We call, we give it a person's name. A a lot of, this is funny. A lot of my students don't even know that Dick is short for Richard. It has become so synonymous Uh with penis that it's like, it's, this is an entity into itself. And so my point was, we don't have names for the clitoris the way we do for the penis. Oh, I agree. And,
0: And I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want you to understand, I am not by any means criticizing what you said. I'm just surprised that, you know, people need names. Why can't we use anatomical names? I agree
1: with you. No, and I didn't feel criticized at all. I thought we were just, you know, going back and forth and saying the same thing in different ways. Mm -hmm.
0: And since you are such the expert, you really are the expert on the clitoris and the female orgasm. What do you think women can do today? to achieve that orgasm equality you so strive for?
1: I think there's many things. I think conversations like this, like being aware, first step to anything is notice, know about the orgasm gap. Notice these false images in movies. Know the way people orgasm. And then take it home, make it personal. Look at your vulva. Get to know it, masturbate, know what you need, communicate your sexual needs, turn off. I mean, it's a tall order, right? But it's doable. It's doable. Turn off your busy brain. Focus on your sensations. Don't go through, don't revolve the whole thing around intercourse as if it's the most important event, if that's not, Consider clitoral stimulation and, and penile stimulation equal. Um. I think we can close the orgasm gap, and I think it takes both cultural and
0: individual change and empowerment. Beautifully said. And I simply cannot end any better than that. But before we go, please tell our listeners how they can find you online because I'm sure they want to.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, You can find me on my website, www.drlauriemintz.com, so D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E-M-I-N-T-Z, and you will find links to all my social media. I'm most active on Instagram, then Facebook, then Twitter, and TikTok, and Pinterest, and my handle on all of those is the same. It's at Dr. Lori Mintz.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I am so honored that you came. I am so happy that we had this conversation. You are truly my hero in so many ways.
1: Well, I am so honored that you reached out. And it's such a pleasure and an honor to, to talk to you and to follow you and to, to, to be inspired by the type of doctor that you are. So thank you.
0: Thank you. I look forward to working together. Me too. Thank you. Until next time. I hope you enjoyed the Dr. Sex Fairy podcast today. I would love to continue this conversation with you. If you would like to get in touch with me, email me at askme at drsexferry.com. Don't forget to follow this podcast and leave me a five-star review. And make sure you follow my blockbuster hit TikTok account, Dr. Sex Fairy.